And Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, You'll notice from my croak, I'm a combination today of Theresa May and uh, a pubescent boy. Um, So I'm sorry about that. It's what happens when I get a cold. It goes south and it goes onto my vocal cords. But we'll croak together. Uh, Appearances can be very deceiving. I remember as a teenager, again, um, not croaking, but uh, eating an apple. There's one worse thing than knowing that there is a maggot in an apple. And that is when you bite into an apple and find half of the maggot in your mouth. Because the apple is rotten. That was my experience when I was a teenager. The uh, rotten apple taste does not put me off apples. I love them. But there was an experience of me biting into this delicious Cox apple and then finding, to my eyes and heart's horror, half a maggot in the apple, which meant half was in the piece of apple in my mouth. I quickly spat it out. Because appearances can be deceiving. It looks great on the outside, but the inside it was rotten to the core. Or you're driving by and you see an arborist. You see a tree surgeon. And there's this lovely oak tree that to the outside looks... It looks hundreds of years old, it looks prosperous, it looks shade-giving, it it looks life-sustaining. But as they begin to take their axe or their huge uh, chainsaw to the trunk, you see that inside it's rotten to the core and it needs to come down or the next strong wind will cause tremendous damage to the tree and both to whatever the tree falls upon. Because appearances can be deceiving. The Sermon on the Mount comes to my attention as we journey into chapter 6 is far more than just a mere ethical description of the Christian life because appearances can be deceiving. And Jesus is saying in chapter 6 on giving to the needy, on prayer, beginning in verse 16, on fasting, 
What is going on in your heart is ever so important. Motives matter. It's not just about doing good things of giving money, verses 1 through 4 of prayer, uh, 5 through 15, and then beginning verse 16, fasting, that we think about next week. Appearances can be deceiving, and so don't be like the hypocrites. You need to be motivated to do these three things from a different posture, a different position. It began in chapter 5 saying, this is the reality, this is the spiritual change, this is the renewal of spirit, this is the new character, this new life that you've received from me in the Beatitudes. And if you have received this inner transformation, if your rottenness, your sinful nature has been uh, put under new management, if your sins have been paid for, then you will live in light of that. That's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning I want us to look at prayer. We'll think about money in a few weeks' time when we look at verse 19 of chapter 6, treasures in heaven. That is sure challenging enough. But this morning I want us to think about prayer. Jesus speaks many things on prayer through his ministry and life, the Apostle Paul too. But sometimes when we pray, we struggle to know how to pray. And this most famous part of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever written and ever given, the most famous prayer teaches us about prayer's foundation. Teaches us about the substance of prayer, what goes on when you pray, how you should pray, and then teaches us foundation, substance, and key, the key to prayer. How do you pray? What do you need to do to pray? Let's think about the foundation firstly. Let's think about the foundation Uh, When you're uh, making a bridge, in my past life, I was a civil engineer, not a caterpillar. Uh, When you're making foundations, it's very, very important to drill the right holes in the right place. Um, Here's a picture from the Florida Keys. What a brilliant piece of uh, seven miles of roadway on water. Quite remarkable feat of engineering that I have yet to travel across. But sometimes when engineers are finding the right footings, especially when you're making bridges, Uh, and structures in water. Yes, you can do that, because concrete can go off underwater. It's quite remarkable. But sometimes it's very hard to know where to put your foundations, because is it going to be sinking sand? Is it going to be soft clay? Is it going to be a substance that we can't quite regulate and manage? Foundations are very, very important. And sometimes I've had people come to me and say, my prayer life is dry. It feels like it's not going anywhere. I don't know how to pray. I'm not sensing God's love or presence. I'm not sensing his reality. Heaven feels like it's shut. Prayer, we all know it if we're Christians, is hard. Prayer, we know if we're not yet a Christian, is jolly hard too. A couple of things could be going on, but perhaps the main reason that you're finding prayer hard is because you're building on the wrong foundation. It's very important. And Jesus gives this, uh, this test, this analysis of the foundation upon which you're praying in the first eight verses of Matthew 6. He's talking to his disciples and he does a compare and contrast to the disciples how they should pray and the practice of the hypocrites and the religious leaders and teachers of the day. He says three times, verses 2, 5 and 16, don't be like them. Who are them? They are the hypocrites. They pray, they give, they fast, but they do it from a completely different motivational structure to the one that Jesus says every Christian should have, every follower of mine, every disciple of mine should have, because appearances can be deceiving. 
And Jesus says, this is the foundational question you've got to ask yourself. When you pray, when you give, next week, spoiler alert, when you fast, why are you doing that? What are you seeking to achieve? What's going on in your heart? Because appearances can be very deceiving. And notice what Jesus says. This is what he says about the hypocrites who give money to the poor, verses 1 to 4. Notice the key word, seen, reward. And notice the contrast about what's internal and what's external, verse 1. The hypocrites, they want to be seen. That's the first word about visibility. Verse 2, they want to be honoured. They want prestige and renown. Verse 3, so Jesus says, don't be like them. When you give, this is how you should do it, verse 3, sentence 3. When you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He's talking about self-congratulation. When you do something with your left hand, don't then shake the right hand. Don't explain to the other part of your person what the other part is doing or has done. It's a self It's a spirit of self-congratulation. Aren't I good? It's like patting yourself on the back when it comes to giving money. There should be a fanfare. People should know what I've done. I feel good about myself when I've given my resources away. And then he moves from giving, verse 5, to prayer. Notice sentence 5. And when you pray. So it says, uh, verse 2, when you give. And now it says, when you pray. Next topic, verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Here comes the contrast again. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen. There's that word again. To be seen by men. Sentence seven. They think they will be heard, the hypocrites, because of their many words. They're babbling. It's like a brook. It's like a fountainhead. Words are copious and many. It's uh, what we say to one of our kids. It's like a word vomit. They're just continuing. It's not a dialogue. It's just a continuous stream of words like Niagara Falls. It's intensity. It's plurality. Words are not carefully crafted or measured or said. It's a torrent. It's a downpour of words. And Jesus says, there are two ways that you can give. And there are two ways that you can pray. And therefore, motivationally in your heart, there are two ways in which you can live. Two ways to give, two ways to pray, two ways to live. One is, like the hypocrites, you can pray to control people. You want to be honoured. And so you stand on the street corners, you look at the best place in the synagogue, you say the right words, to be seen. You're trying to control people, their opinion. But also you're trying to control God. You think with the torrent of many words, God will owe you. You think if you say the right words and you dress in the right way, then God will be in your debt. Or... You can pray to your Father who is unseen. Same word, contrast. You can pray and you can give out of gratitude and joy. Two completely different motivations in your heart in which you approach people and in which you approach God. Aha! So are you saying, therefore, that Jesus' disciples should be doing it just for joy? You give for joy, there's no reward. You pray and there's no reward. Well, no, because notice four times, four verses... Over and over again, there's a repetition of phrase. Jesus says to his disciples, don't be like the hypocrites, but remember you will be rewarded by your Father who sees. Verse 1. Negative. 
If you behave like them, you'll get no reward from your father. Verse 4. Then your father will reward you. Sentence 6. Then your father will reward you. Verse 8. There's a rhythm to this. Then your father will give you what you need. Do you see the tense? Will you behave now to be rewarded and seen in the present? Or will you live for the future? Will you pray to your father who's unseen? Will you trust in his promises? Will you live by faith? And this is not a new thought from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Chapter 5, the first uh, clause, the first part, the Beatitudes that sets it all up, he says it's about the future. Will you live now or will you live for the future? Blessed are they who do. Blessed are those who will. Blessed are those. It's all future tense, but there is also, there's also blessing now. It's a now and a not yet. Will you live now in light of the future as you give and as you pray? Or will you be like a hypocrite and they want their best life right now? Right now. Because you can treat God like a boss or you can treat him like a father. Do you know the difference? If you treat God like a boss... Think about employment. You're employed, you see a job that you want to apply for, you apply for it, you get hired, you've got the right credentials, they take a risk on you. But then for an honest month's work, you get an honest month's pay. At least, I hope you're honest, because we covered that earlier in oaths. But that's the point. You earn what you get, and you should be paid for the work that you've done. It's about externals, and you'll be rewarded. But if you translate that to how you treat God, when you give and when you pray, this is what will happen. If you treat God as a boss, if you salute him, this is what happens. When you pray, you will only pray in public. You'll pray in church, but you won't pray in private. Because God is a boss and you only pray publicly because you want to be like the hypocrite. You want other people to hear. You want other people to think that you're a a religious person, someone who is a person of standing. You only pray in public. You don't pray in private. When you pray, if you treat God as a boss, you pray when you want something. You babble intently. You say, I'm in desperate need for this. I need a job. I need a a partner. I I need my children to get this and that. I need my retirement fund to grow. I need the the FTSE not to tank anymore. Because you're after something and you want to twist God's arm with your many words. If you treat God as a boss, your prayer life will be vital when you're in trouble. If you have a prayer life, this is a symptom that you treat God as a boss. When you pray, if your prayer life goes through the roof when you're in trouble, that shows that you're treating God as a boss. When your prayer life is normal, when it's zip, when it's nil, that's because your life is going fine and you don't need anything from God. But when there's trouble, your prayer life goes through the roof. That's a sign that you're treating God as a boss. You are hypocrite-like. But God says, no, don't approach me that way. I'm not a boss. I'm your father, Christian. It's not about getting things from me. It's about fellowship. That's a completely different motivational structure for coming to God, for giving your resources away. When you see God as your father, you come to him because you want to speak to him. You want to have your priorities aligned with his. It's a relationship. It's a friendship. But it's more than that. It's fellowship. 
And Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to a radically generous life where your resources that I've entrusted to you are there with an open hand to be given away as a blessing to others, to those in need. But when you pray, don't come to me as a boss, not just when you want something, not just publicly, not just for show. As a Christian, someone who can call me father, it's about relationship. And then Jesus begins to teach on prayer, beginning in verse 5. And he's saying, I'm calling you to a grace-based family-like relationship where I am your father. And that's why the model prayer begins with that word, verse 9, our father. And he says father over and over again. It began in uh, chapter 5, verse 16, your father in heaven. And it's there like a a stream of rock, of granite, uh, going under the earth in the Sermon on the Mount. It's very interesting. The radical orientation between God and us. We now, through Jesus, can call our our ruler and maker, our father, as well as our God. And it's there underpinning the whole Sermon on the Mount. And it's saturating what Jesus has to say on prayer. It's the foundational truth. Christian friend, when you give, you can give your resources away because you trust your Heavenly Father to provide for you. So you're not anxious about the future. And when you pray, it's not just about a mechanism. It's not just about an incarnation or an incantation rather, it is about the incarnation. But you pray because God is your Father, and he loves to hear your voice. It's the foundation of prayer, and it's a solid one. But what happens in the prayer itself? Look at the substance. We will be quicker, don't worry. This is a blueprint now, excuse me. (coughs) This is the blueprint for all prayer. All prayer. If I lose my voice, it would be a shorter sermon. Four things um, that you can see. The first thing that Jesus calls us to is adoration. Adoration. It's pretty hard to miss if you see the first thing, beginning in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it takes quite a while in the prayer before we get to needs. It's almost halfway through before the shopping list begins. The prayer begins with adoration. And that makes sense if you build on the foundation, because the foundation is that because of Jesus, every Christian has the right to approach our maker and creator as our father. And so the first thing you want to do when you realise that, and as your understanding of that deepens, is that surely you want to adore and praise your God. That makes sense. You want to adore him for who he is. You want to marvel at his beauty. You want to understand him more just for who he is, just for what he's done. You want to enjoy meditating on his character, on his promises, on his purposes. God is not finite, he's not limited, he's transcendent, he's great, he's majestic, he's marvellous and wonderful. These superlatives run out in the psalmist. You say, you're heavenly, verse 9, our Father in heaven, You are great. You are beyond us. You're not limited to our understanding. And you want to marvel at that. You want to adore that. But then you say, you're hallowed. You're you're holy. You're pure. You're perfect. You want to meditate on that truth like a lozenge, like I need. You want to take that truth and, and put it around your soul to say that God is pure and holy, but he's reached out and he's rescued me. And I want to adore him for that. 
But then he's personal. Verse 9. One of the things I love about this is we can say, Our Father in heaven, God has a name. God has a name. He's not a Star Wars-esque force. It's not dualism. There's no uncertainty. God has a name for us to know him. He is a person, which means we can relate to him on his terms, not on ours. And we can say if we're a Christian, our Father. Not just a status that we understand. Not just a character that we come to appreciate. He, we can say our, my, Daddy, Abba. It's a relationship that we can enjoy. It's intimacy. It's unlike any religion, any other religion in the world cannot say this. He is our God, but he's also our Father. And so we can pray to him adoringly, meditating on his person and his goodness. Friends, our greatest need is not our daily bread. Our greatest need is to know God in a deeper and a more lasting way to understand who he is, to enjoy him more, to have the truth of the gospel rubbed into our hearts like you rub in a dry rub into a steak for a marinade. Not meaning to make you salivate, but you know what I mean. Why is that our greatest need? Or put it like this, you're a Christian and you know that God loves you, but then criticism comes. And very quickly, the the love of God can be eroded, it can be eaten away like a caterpillar on a rose leaf. Just eat it away. And very quickly you'll define what other people think of you rather than your heavenly father, who you know loves you, but it's not as real to you as it could be and as it should be. Our greatest need is not our daily bread. That is important, that does come. But our greatest need is, verse 9, to meditate on who our father in heaven is, to understand the gospel more, When we lose our reputation, when that's taken away from us, is that our core identity? Or is it that we know that we have a Father in heaven who's loved us and done everything to rescue us? It's our greatest need is to have our hearts dazzled by the character and nature of God every single day, whatever age or stage of life. That's what we need the most, to plunge ourselves into the depths of the gospel and in the purposes of God. It's a bit like praying... And some of us can't remember this. Praying that we would know the difference between black and white TV and colour. It's a game changer. You see depth. You can tell who Scotland is and who England is. Not just because it's black and white anymore. Less said about that, the better. It's the difference between audio, just hearing a description of cricket on the radio. And seeing it, some of you, it might be your nightmare. I would love that. But it's wonderful hearing cricket described, but it's another thing seeing it in 3D. That's what we need most, is to plunge our hearts and persons headfirst into the character and nature of God and enjoy him. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We want that truth to become more and more real this year in our hearts as Christians. It's our greatest spiritual and real need. Quickly, secondly, accepting. If adoration is where it begins, now it's accepting. Now this is scary and there should be a health warning on sentence 10. You're to pray to your Father in heaven and you pray, your kingdom come, here's the clause that troubles me greatly, your will be done. Christian friend, do you really mean what you say? I've prayed that through fingers that are just partially opened. I do mean it but I kind of wish it wasn't quite so. 
Because what you're praying to a father who loves you and does all things well is you're, you're saying, I obey everything you say in your word and I recognize that sometimes blessing comes through tears, knowledge of you comes primarily through suffering and I recognize in saying your will be done that you know better than me. And I struggle with that because I'm quite a control freak. And I think I know what's best. And if you pray sentence 10, you're saying, you know what's best. Do you mean what you say, Christian, when you pray that in the blueprint of prayer? You should really shiver when you say sentence 10. Shiver, but you shiver with confidence because you know God does all things well but he will lead you into paths and places that you would not choose yourself, but they will be for your good, they will be for your growth, they will be for your godliness, for your sanctification to make you more like Jesus. But sometimes those pathways will be hard. But in that sentence, there is the REM, deep sleep of the soul. You know REM, not the musicians of the 80s and 90s. REM, that deep sleep, that rapid eye movement sleep. You need about two uh, hours of that a night and then you're fully recharged. I I have a spiritual gift of sleeping, just ask my wife. Um, I get about seven hours of that every night, which is where I can't be woken unless the Lord returns. Um, But here you can say, I trust my soul and my life into your hands and it's the deep REM sleep of the soul. I want you to have your will in my life. And you have to pray that confidently, trusting that God does all things well. It's adoration of his purpose and nature and character. And it's accepting that he does, and he always does what is right. Thirdly, it's asking, sentences 11 through 14. We've uh, oriented our hearts through this blueprint of prayer, vertically. God, you're my Father in heaven. God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come. And now, sentences 11 through 14, it gets horizontal. But the primary, or the the first function is vertical. But horizontal is important. Look at uh, sentences 11 through 14. Give us our daily bread, please. And then verses 12 to 14 are quite striking. Forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. That's horizontal. And at the very end, sentence 14, there's a hard sentence to understand. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is very, very practical. You're asking for your needs, for bread. You're asking for an understanding vertically, confidently you know who God is, you want to enjoy him and know more of him. And then you pray relationally, you pray horizontally. Prayer, our vertical relationship with God, must affect who we are socially, horizontally. No disconnect here. But what about sentence 14? It sounds like a quid pro quo. If you don't do your bit, if you don't do your forgiving, God won't vertically do do his forgiving. It sounds like that. And I don't think that's what it means. And the commentators, people that have studied this, says that's not what it means. In general... This is what it means. You will stay angry with someone horizontally. You will struggle to forgive someone if you look down upon them. If you have an arrogant posture, 
If you have a position in your heart where you think you're better than someone, we learn about that in verses 21 and following of chapter 5. If you are a person that looks through people, if you do not recognize chapter 5 verse 3, that you are a rebel that's been rescued, that you have nothing to offer God apart from your own sin, if you don't see yourself as that, you will always look down on people and that will stop you forgiving people. You will say something like, I would never do that. What sort of person would treat me like that? I wouldn't even treat my dog like that, unless you're a dog lover. That kind of stuff. But if you uh, understand who you are before God, if you have a poverty of spirit, then that must mean that you're going to forgive people. If you understand how much you've been forgiven vertically, you will forgive people horizontally. You must, or you've not understood the gospel. And when you pray vertically or reorienting, resetting your priorities, your personal relationship, your social uh, relationships will be filled and should be filled and must be filled with justice, so you forgive, and forgiveness. It's adoration, it's accepting, it's asking. Finally, I couldn't find an A, it's rebelling against the status quo, the evil status quo. This is a quote from Karl Barth. Karl Barth said, when you pray, you're rebelling against the disorder of the world. It's an interesting phrase. You're rebelling against the disorder of the world. It's from sentence 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is subversive. Prayer is Praying not that the world's agenda continues, but that God's priorities grow. Not that the, uh, the kingdom of man and woman increases, but that God's kingdom will grow. And that's why Bart's uh, quote is helpful. When you pray, you're rebelling against the disorder of the world. And that goes back all the way back to Genesis. God did not create the world for someone to be able to get a gun, to get the resources, and to broadcast an atrocity on the web. He didn't create the world to be like that. The world was good. Our rebellion has made the world uh, corrupt and evil. That's sin. That's why that happens. And the world was not meant to be filled with injustice. It was not meant to be filled with pain, but it is now. But we know, because the Bible tells us so, that in the end, God will put all things right. Sin will be done away with. Suffering will end. Tears will be dried up and no more. Sadness will be a distant memory if remembered at all. God will put everything right. And so when we pray for God's kingdom to grow, we're praying in that context, in that frame, and in that knowledge. Your kingdom come. It will come. And we pray that it will be seen increasingly in Epsom and Yule through our efforts and energies as well. It's, it's reorientating our hearts to the priorities of God. That's vertical. And then it charges us with responsibilities horizontal. Socially, as we pray that God would work, it's always the case that uh, we have so often the answer to our own prayers. We pray for Mrs. Miggins next door to hear the gospel. How will she hear? You could tell her. We pray for those who haven't got enough money to make ends meet in Epsom and Yule. Yes, we know that's complex, but that's what we're involved in food bank because we want to be generous with what we have. It's vertical, but it's horizontal. It's a matter of uh, adoration. Adoring who God is, that's where it begins. It's a matter of accepting, asking for our needs, and they are many, but also rebelling against the status quo. Friends, how does your prayer life measure up? Who are we most like? 
Do we love to be heard? Are we confident to be heard in public domain? Because it's not about what other people think about us. It's about our relationship with God. Are we generous with our time? Are we generous with our resources? Are are we hypocrite-like? Who do we want to entrust our hearts and lives to? People that can be seen or our Father in heaven who is unseen. That's the foundation, that's the substance. What about the key? You can know those two parts. You can understand, like many non-Christians do, what the, uh, the church has always taught about the Lord's Prayer. But they don't have the key. What do I mean? Finally, Jesus did not just tell us to pray like this. He does tell us to pray like this, but he also prayed like this himself in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. Jesus prayed and lived out this prayer. Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just like Muhammad. He's our saviour. So he provides his blueprint for prayer, but then he also acts it out in those two locations, in the garden and on the cross. What do I mean? In the garden, Matthew 26 says, Jesus was wrestling like no one has ever wrestled before with what was about to happen next. Is there any other way for you to rescue a people for yourself. Father, my soul is sorrow-filled, filled with sorrow, even unto death. I feel like I'm going to die. Please, will this cup of your wrath, your righteous justice against the sins of the world, please can you take it from me? Is there any other way? Nevertheless, hear the Lord's prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is praying the Lord's prayer. He's entrusting himself to his heavenly Father, Father, can you give me this? If not, your will be done. What I'm most prioritised about is not my own suffering, as soul-wrenching as that is. It's your kingdom coming. I want your glory to be known. I want your name to be enjoyed. I want your fame to extend. And I want to rescue a people for you. It's not about me, says Jesus. It's about you. Your kingdom come. How's it going to come? Most dramatically through the cross. So Jesus is praying the Lord's Prayer in Gethsemane. But he's not finished. On the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. One person has said there's one part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus could not pray because he never sinned. Father, forgive us our debts. Jesus could not say that because he never sinned. There's no place where Jesus has to say for himself, Father, forgive my sins, because he's sinless. He was perfect. But because he was perfect, he was the only person who could die, and he was the only person who had to die. He had to drink the cup. He had to take the punishment. He had to say, your will be done, when he said, Father, forgive them. There was no other way unless he died for the sins of the world. No other way to God apart from Jesus Christ. He took all the punishment, all the righteous justice of God upon himself. He carried it all. And that's why we can sing, all to him we owe. He prayed the prayer in the garden and on the cross. And because he prayed the prayer, not only can we be rescued, because he lived the prayer, not only can we be saved, But you can pray this prayer too. It's a a prayer of dynamite. It's a prayer that should have TNT written on the top of it. Because this prayer and the gospel that this prayer is encapsulated in 
has the power to change your life. You can only truly pray this prayer if you know God is your Father. And that means you must know that Jesus is your rescuer and saviour. Do you know that? If you do, this prayer as we pray it, and I encourage you to pray it, not just quickly, but to meditate on it word by word, even in the week to come. This prayer, as it explains the gospel implicitly, it has the power to transform you like TNT would, to explode you, to renew you spiritually. It can give you a life of stability and gratitude and joy. You trust your life to your Father. You know the joy of the gospel. You have gratitude for all that Jesus has done for you. Friend, is God your Father? Not remotely. Don't just know the truth, that what Christians believe. Can you say, no, he's my Father? Can you say that? If you can't, I'd love to speak to you at the end of the service. But Christian friend, if he is your father, how do your prayers measure up? Not in terms of time or quantity, trying to guilt you into anything. But are they those priorities? I want to get to know you better. I want your kingdom to expand. Lord, please meet my needs. Lord, please help me to forgive those that I've wronged as you've forgiven me. Father, please, your kingdom come. Let's pray together.